Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Fiona McFarlane on her latest novel, The Sun Walks Down. Fiona McFarlane's first novel, The Night Guest, won several prizes, including the Voss Literary Prize and the New South Wales Premier's Award, and was shortlisted for The Guardian's First Book Award, Los Angeles Times Book Prize for First Fiction, and Miles Franklin Literary Award, among others. She's also the author of a short story collection, The High Places, which won the International Dylan Thomas Prize. Her stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Zoetrope All Story, and Best Australian Stories. She grew up in Sydney and now lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. And today we're here to talk about Fiona's latest novel, which is The Sun Walks Down. Fiona, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. First of all, can I ask you how you would describe the novel? I think there are two ways to describe it. One of them is it's uh, an exploration of a town, of a community of people coming together to look for a six-year-old boy who's gone missing in the Australian desert. But I think it's also an interrogation of Australian history and the myths and uh, cultural narratives that have grown up around the settlement of Australia. And it takes place in in a town, a fictional town, which we'll talk about in a moment, but in the wider area, the real Flinders Ranges and the Willocra Plain. Tell us what this landscape is like. This is an incredibly extraordinary landscape, and this is where the book began for me. I went on a road trip around South Australia after visiting a writers' festival in Adelaide and went to the Flinders Ranges for the first time. It's an arid country. It's dusty and and dry. The hills are old, old mountains, uh, red rock, uh, really extraordinary geological formations that you don't find anywhere else. And it's the only place on Earth that you can see 350 million years of continuous geological history all at once. It's really quite singular. And when I was there, one of the things that really stood out to me was that, uh, you know, it's it's a remote, arid region, but it's full of ghost towns and ghost buildings. And you'll, you'll be walking around and you'll find a, a brick chimney, or there'll just be a church in the middle of a field. 
And I was fascinated to learn that in the late 19th century, people were told that if they plowed the earth here, then it would rain and they could grow wheat. Uh, And so for about 10 years in the late 1870s, early 1880s, all of these townships grew up along the the railway line and the telegraph line that cut through the centre of Australia from Adelaide up to Darwin and tried to grow wheat and failed at growing wheat and then left again. So the whole place feels sort of like a, a ghost desert, not just a ghost town, but a ghost desert. And there's something very unsettling about it, something very beautiful and very unsettling. And when I was thinking about how unsettling it felt, I realized how apt that word was, that what I was seeing was evidence of the failure of settlement. And so often uh, the ways in which we talk about Australian colonial history are about settlement and not unsettlement. But it got me really thinking about the Indigenous history of the area as well. Another form of unsettlement that took place when Australia and South Australia in particular with this book was invaded by European settlers. So I began to think about the Flinders as a possible alternative way into Australian colonial history that would give me the opportunity to really pay attention to some of those cultural myths and uh, prod at them and poke at them and explore them a little. And we'll talk about how you use those myths later on in the interview in terms of the actual novel, Um, but the actual real Flinders Ranges. So what would have been the... um, what Aboriginal nations would have been there before the, the colonialists arrived? So the very specific area, I mean, the, the book specifies that the Flinders and the Wallachia Plain are real and that I've invented a small part of them. <laughs> if the Fairley and the surrounds that I've invented existed, they would be on Nakana land and what was called at the time uh, Yadlia Wada, although the Yadlia Wada nation has combined with other ones to become what's now known as the Adyamatna nation. So the Adnyamatna nation didn't exist as an entity in 1883 when I was writing, uh, when the book is set, but the local nation would have been Yadliawara. And tell us something about the, I mean, I guess it's, it is related to the landscape itself because uh, dust plays a big part, but the remarkable sunsets of the place. And I want you to talk about this mainly because, of course, first of all, the title of the novel and what that means, but also the way that the novel is structured. Yeah, it's a a very sun-based novel, it's true. Uh, We spend a week with this community and their various visitors. Uh, We spend a day and night over the course of seven days. We see seven sunsets. And the sunsets at this particular moment are extraordinarily vivid. No one has ever quite seen skies like this before. And it's particularly relevant because We have a Swedish painter and his English artist wife who are visiting the Flinders on a painting trip at this time. And the Swedish painter feels uh, rather put out that he finds himself in the ends of the earth in Australia. And he's been told by his wife that he needs to, you know, paint landscapes and to sell them. And he thinks, well, what is there? What could there possibly be to paint in, in Australia? What is this new empty place? And one of the things the book's really interested in is thinking about different perspectives on place. One of the reasons I like stressing that 350 million years of geological history is to point out how deeply ancient this place is. But for Carl, my Swedish painter, it doesn't feel ancient at all. It feels uh, new and it feels empty and it, it feels quite barren. But he encounters these sunsets and assumes that they only happen here in the Flinders because he's never seen anything like it before. And he realizes that he's here to paint these, that that's what has brought him here. 
And, you know, whether or not that turns out to be the case, uh, the book sort of goes on to explore. But the book is in so many ways about art and making art and who gets to make it and what it costs the person who makes it and the, the person who's being written about, uh, you know, who has permission to take what story, what actions can you take to secure a, a story or an image or, or a narrative and make it your own in some way, which is, you know, what I'm doing as well by writing the book. And The Sun Walks Down, the title comes from the Swedish word for sunset, which translates to The Sun Walks Down in English. And it's something that Carl thinks about at one point during the novel, because he's thinking about translating the world, the, the visual world onto the page as a painter. Um, we have other characters thinking about doing that translation as, as a writer and illustrator as well. He's thinking about that, but he's also thinking about the translation from the very active Swedish sentence, the sun walks down, to the more passive English sunset. And that is where the title comes from. So we get to see the sun walk down seven times and uh, lots of characters thinking thinking about the sun. And it means something a little different. Those sunsets mean something a little different to all of them. And tell us something about Fairly, the town, which is a fictional town. The book is set in 1883. So what, what would this town have been like in 1883? Who would have built this town and who was living there? Well, the town would have been built pretty recently. So the uh, the railway line would have gone through a few years before. Uh, and then in the 1870s, these plots would have been mapped out in the middle of the desert on what used to be big pastoral properties, big sheep and cattle stations. It was decided, though, that more land was needed for smallholder uh, settlers, and a lot of the big sheep and cattle stations were disbanded and plots were marked out for towns, and then within those towns, plots were marked out for houses, and then around the towns, small holdings, small holding farms were marked out for wheat farmers. So you would have had a situation where you would arrive in this sort of arid place and there would have been town lots marked out with little flags but you know no trees anywhere I mean it's sort of sort of extraordinary to think about and you know some of these towns were really really bustling at the time particularly the the railway was still being built north and so every time you a town grew up around the railhead before the next section of the railway line had been opened then it was a hub for people you know it was really an important place where people gathered, where the larger sheep and cattle stations were bringing their stock in or their wool in or, or getting their supplies shipped out. So these places were bustling, but then the railway line would move on and the rain didn't come and things sort of fell apart based on that. And that's the sort of the movement the, of population, I suppose, that I was particularly interested in exploring. So Fairley is, it has been at the railhead and the railhead has just moved on recently. So it's beginning its decline, but at the time it feels, you know, they feel quite respectable. They sort of pretend that they're not 300 miles north of Adelaide. They, you know, they're very proud of the fact that their church is debt-free and the town is full of all of the hierarchies and resentments and gossip that you might expect of a small town in the middle of nowhere. So we're going to talk about some more of the characters you mentioned, Carl and Beth's rap, the the artists already. Um, before we go on to talk about some of them in particular, let's talk about the the narrative perspective of the of the book in totality. So there's there's a whole load of characters, and we see the story from lots of people's perspectives. 
Yeah, it was really important to me that that be the way the book was structured. When I realized that I was going to write a book set in the 19th century, because I, I went to this wonderful place and, and knew that I had to write about it. And I knew that I had to write about the history of the place. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to write this historical novel, if it seems that I have no choice, then one of the things that I want to be really careful about and really think about is the, sort of the ethics of representing the past, of recreating the past and why we do that and what's possible and what that looks like and what costs there might be to it. So it was really important to me that this book not have one single authoritative narrative voice that announced itself as an expert on the past in some way, or that there only be one story within the book to tell. I wanted the novel to be full of characters, full of very uh, subjective perspectives on this place and the people who are living there and what's happening there. I wanted uh, seemingly random characters to to get the opportunity to sort of pipe up and have their say every now and then, because I wanted it to feel sort of noisy and and messy and contradictory. So even though we're following a very clear and simple storyline, a six-year-old boy has gone missing in the desert, and this is the account of everybody looking for him. I wanted it to feel as if each character was their own world with their own constellation of, of worries and desires. And all of these people were existing alongside each other. And so there could be no authoritative version of this town, of this particular time and this particular place, because all of these people have their own version and see it very differently from one another. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Fiona McFarlane. We're talking about her new novel, The Sun Walks Down. And Fiona, I said we were going to look at some of the characters. And as you said, there's not strictly a main character, but the, the sort of inciting incident of the story is the disappearance of the, the very excellently named Denny, a six-year-old boy. Tell us something more about who he is. Well, Denny is a character who interested me for a few reasons. One of them is that this is a place, this is the only place this boy has ever been. So one of the things that interested me was thinking about how the landscape is interpreted by different people, by the Nakana and Yadliawada people, and how different that might be to the wheat farmers and how different that might be to the Swedish painter, etc. And thinking specifically about what it might mean to a small white boy who's never seen anywhere else. One of the ways in which Denny makes sense or tries to make sense of his world is through the stories he's been told by the different adults in his life. And those stories have come from all over the place. He's heard Bible stories. He's heard Greek myths. He's heard uh, sort of boogeyman stories from his father that have been imported from the East Anglian Fens. And he's heard stories from Billy Ruff, his father's farmhand, who's a Yadlia waterman, who has his own stories about the inhabitants of the plain, both visible and invisible. And Denny has combined these into a cosmology of his own as he tries to make sense of this place he, he lives in and cannot imagine anything other than. The opening line of the novel is, the boy met a god by the hollow tree. He has a sense of gods in this landscape that is frightening to him and really plays a part in, not in him going missing, but in him remaining missing. So he's a smart, he's an intelligent, resourceful, uh, imaginative boy who is perhaps for those very reasons ill-equipped for the situation he finds himself in. I was going to say um, as well, like you, you mentioned that he has all this cosmology, Billy Roth, who is, we'll talk about himself in, in a moment, but he sees that, you know, not only does he have these stories, but even more of an affinity like with the land. So it is interesting that you, you, you say that the, the imagination that he has is something that might ill-equip him to be lost in this landscape when he also has a much more, he's one of the characters that obviously is a boy. So he's been born in Australia and the, the few characters in the novel who are white, who have been born in the country, have much more of an affinity with the place than the people who were immigrants. That's true, but the the affinity isn't always a pleasant one, I suppose. I mean, we have um, the, the sergeant character, Foster, who feels a very, very strong affinity with the land because he was born there, you know, and he, he feels that to be a special kind of privilege. But his relationship with the land is deeply paternalistic and uh, very, you know, he's very much a, let's let's conquer this land, even though, you know, he is the child of settlers and not not a settler himself. So I wanted there to be a sense of, well, well, I suppose one of the things the book is interested in exploring is who belongs, what it looks like to belong, who gets to decide who belongs. And one of those questions sort of circulates around the children of settlers who have never belonged anywhere else, but would still have been considered English subjects rather than Australian, because in 1883, Australia didn't exist. It was a collection of colonies. 
So that's part of what it sort of interests me. And then the other thing about Denny that interests me, the reason that the book is centered on a six-year-old boy who goes missing is because of this pervasive cultural myth we have in Australia around lost white children in the bush, in the outback, in uh, settler times. Appears everywhere in our literature, in our films, in our art. I'm thinking of things like Picnic at Hanging Rock. I'm thinking of all of the 19th century paintings by artists like Frederick McCubbin that show small children lost in the bush. Uh, Some of our big 19th century poets were writing about this. And then there were cases of it. There were instances that were often very sentimentalized in the press, particularly in the late 19th century. It's also an interesting touch point for anxieties about invasion, uh, anxieties about belonging, and also uh, an interesting way in which Indigenous stories were allowed to participate in white stories of Australia in a positive way, because so often the children were found via Aboriginal trackers who have a much better understanding and a much deeper affinity with the land on which the children have gone missing. So I thought, again, if I'm going to write an historical novel, if it's going to be set in the outback in the 19th century, then why don't I also take a look at this enormous story that Australia keeps telling itself over and over and over again about children lost in the wilderness and what that means, not just for the the children themselves, but for the community that feels they have lost to them. And that's why Denny is so central to the book. I wanted to talk about this myth, because obviously, as you said here, and like with films like Picnic at Hanging Rock, but this is clearly something that still pervades Australia, because I mean, I mean, I say still because I'm thinking of an incident from 30 years ago. But, you know, what else is the dingo ate my baby story yeah. if it's not about, you know, a white child going missing in the outback? Absolutely. I mean, that's sort of the point at which I would say the myth reaches its pinnacle. And there are, you know, some of the some of the intense controversy around that, uh, the intense belief in Lindy Chamberlain's guilt or in her innocence feels really caught up in this question of, are we allowed to be here and are we being punished for it? And I think that's one of the reasons that the Chamberlain case was so, you know, it's it's compelling in its own awful way, uh, just generally. I mean, it, it was compelling all over the world. But I think for Australians, there was a particular charge to it that is part of why it became as messy and as painful as it did. Tell us something more about Billy Ruff then, who is a man that has, well, he's worked on another family's ranch farm, first of all, um, mm-hmm. and now works for for Matthew Wallace, who is Denny's father. Tell us something about him. Well, Billy is a Yadley Awada man who was a young boy when about 40 years before the novel begins, white settlers first appeared on the Wallachra Plain. And he was sort of taken up by this newly arrived landowner who, I mean, there, there are all sorts of ways in which, the, and the novel suggests and goes on to mention some of the frontier violence, you know, that was taking place in this, you know, in what really was a war uh, in the 1840s and 1850s. But Billy was too young to really understand that those things were happening. And he's sort of adopted by this landowner who arrives, a guy called Henry Axum, who uh, is sort of an eccentric eccentric Brit who shows up 
and uh, has all sorts of ideas about what it might mean to establish his own kingdom on the Wolokra. And he notices in Billy extraordinary skills that he thinks he can train into, you know, one of the greatest cricketers of all time. So he sees Billy as this proto-cricket master. But he is, of course, I mean, he is, he's a collector. You know, he sees Billy and his skill at cricket as something to be celebrated, but also sort of something to be placed in a cabinet of curiosities. But because of that interest that Henry Axum, this landowner, has in Billy, Billy is sort of withdraws from his family's traditional life, which has also been completely disrupted by the invasion. He becomes sort of a, a shadow to, to Henry. He enters into a new kind of relationship with his own identity and his own skills. That means he's sort of floating in between the Yadli Awada community and the white community. And by the time we meet him and he's working for Denny's father, Henry Axon, the man who adopted his cricket skills, has long since died and he has had to spend the last few decades negotiating the fact that he can't be too extraordinary, that it's dangerous for him to be singled out in any way because of the skills he has, because of Henry's adoption of him. So by the time we meet him, he's in middle age, he misses cricket enormously, he's figuring out what it means to be him in this country, in this particular place. And he's really caught between two different versions of that. Australia at this time is obviously a, a you know a very harsh, masculine place, but there are some really compelling women characters in the novel. And I want to talk about a couple of those before I get you to to read a bit of the novel. The first of which is Sissy, who is one of the, the many Wallace sisters. But Sissy stands out in particular. Tell us something about her. Sissy is a, a teenage girl, although I suppose teenage isn't quite the right word to use it in the 19th century. But, you know, she's a young girl who has set ideas about how people should be and how the world should be run. She's very bossy. Uh, she's very practical. She's desperate to be doing at all times. She's ambitious. She's figuring out what desire is and what it might look like and what forms it's allowed to take in the society that she lives in. She is tomboyish in some ways, I suppose. I mean, she's resisting certain ideas of how women at the time are supposed to behave, but she's also quite limited. You know, she's lacking in imagination in some ways. So she is such a force of nature herself that it doesn't occur to her that other people have different interior lives at all, which I think is often the case for, you know, 15-year-olds the world over. It feels as if the inside of your brain is the most intense and dramatic place to be. And it couldn't possibly be the case that your parents also, for example, have an interiority like this. So she is very uh, she's very frustrated at the world that not everyone is exactly the way she is and, and practical and, you know, let's drop everything and look for Denny. And I've had enough of, you know, the women having to stay behind and cook the food for the men who go looking. She has her own strong sense that she wants to be out there looking, she wants to be doing and she's also thinking about her alternatives at this time. So the novel opens with the wedding of a slightly older girl that she knows from town. And she's thinking about what it would mean for her to get married, what it would mean, you know, what it will mean when she finishes at school, what kind of job she might have, what kind of life she might have. So it's a, at a particular point in her life where she's trying to figure out 
what it might mean to devote her life to something. And she's sort of playing with some of those possibilities in the novel. And it's that other girl, it was the other person I wanted to talk about, the girl whose wedding she attends, Minna, Minna Bowman. Tell us something about her. So Minna has just married the local policeman. We open with her wedding. So the day that Danny goes missing is also the day of the wedding. And Minna and her husband have uh, a lovely wedding night. It's not their first time together in an intimate way, but it is their first time when it's been allowed. And it's sort of a a very intense experience for Minna, who is herself full of desire and very kind of bodily, very, she exists within, in her body and her desire is the, the root of everything for her. And then, of course, very early on the next morning, Denny Wallace's father shows up and says to her policeman husband, my son's gone missing and the, the policeman husband has to leave and go out for this search. And so Minna is left alone with this desire, with this newness, with all of the authority of her beauty and her pleasure, and not quite sure what to do with any of that because her husband isn't there anymore. So she is a very different character to Sissy. She sees the world very differently. I think Sissy would would happily cast off her body, except that it makes it possible for her to do things and you know do practical things and achieve practical things. Whereas for Minna, everything radiates from the fact that she has a body and that it's desirable and that she herself desires. So I suppose she's going through the the week in a fog of desire and encountering various characters in the novel who respond in different ways to what Minna is emitting. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? I'd love to. So I'll read from the very opening of the novel. The boy met a god by the hollow tree. Go away, said the boy, and the god, formless, passed on in the direction of the red hill. Then the boy was free to hunt in the scrub for roosting hens. When he came upon the hens, they flapped up as if they could fly, and he gathered their eggs in a basket. The boy was six years old and thin, with a vivid pointed face. He wasn't pale exactly, his skin browned in the sun but the visible veins at his wrists and ears suggested a delicacy that the people he knew associated with pale children. There was so little of him. When his mother held him, his heart felt near. Light hair, lifting in the briefest wind, and not so delicate, in fact, a strong boy, a good runner. The name people called him was Denny, and he answered to it. The boy was gentle as he settled the eggs in the basket. Then his mother wanted him close. He knew this, even though she hadn't called his name. Nobody had ever told him about his mother's deafness. She was simply his mother, which meant she heard little and spoke less. But the boy knew when she wanted him to go to her. She had finished hanging the sheets on the line behind the house, and the boy went to give her the basket of eggs. She took it, bent down to him, and pressed her face against his neck. Today she belonged to him entirely. All his sisters were at a wedding in town, and his father was out planting parsnips. The boy and his man were alone and loving among the sheets. Then, quick as a blink, she straightened, turned her back, and went into the house, which always ate her up. The boy, following, wanted to help her churn the butter, but she made him put his boots on. She laced them tight, and she sent him out with a sack to gather grass and bark and twigs. He liked to collect things for the fire, and he liked to please her. The black dog, Mopsy, woke from her nap in the sun, and looked as if she might come with him. 
but she heard Mam start the butter churn and went to supervise that instead. The boy walked away from the red hill, though it was from behind the hill that his sisters would come home from town. The country he walked into was red and brown, desert country, but there was a haze of green over the top of it because it was spring. At this time of day, the surrounding hills were white and yellow and green. A shrub scratched the boy's shin and he followed for a while the deep course of a dry creek. He kneeled on its stony bed and saw ants carrying a large dead fly. The word that came to him was housebound, maybe because he'd heard his mother use that word about Mrs. Bowman, who had large eyes like a fly and clean folded hands and sat in a chair with wheels on it as if she had neat grey wings tucked behind her. But the boy didn't think of Mrs. Bowman exactly. The word housebound just dropped into the boy and went away again. He rounded a curve in the creek and surprised a kangaroo. He knew the story of the kangaroo. Once upon a time, it argued about food with its cousin, the wallaroo. So now it stayed here on the dry, flat plain while the wallaroo lived up in the hills. The boy's heart was big with sorrow for the kangaroo, which crouched very still and looked at him. It seemed to be waiting for something to happen. Then it turned and flew from the creek bed and the boy climbed out to follow it for its dung, which also burned. Really, he followed it because it was fast, because the boy was also waiting for something to happen, because he was six years old. Soon things would happen. Men would call his name in the night. There would be blood on a handkerchief and fire on the red hill. The boy looked north and saw a high, dark wall over the ranges. The wall was moving towards him. It was made of dust, and when the dust reached him, it hid the sun. The sun was there. The boy could see it through his narrowed eyes, but it was brown now and silly, only as bright as a lamp or the moon. The dust rolled down from the north in secret colours, very soft, until the wind came up behind it. Then it stung. The boy held the sack across his face, as his father had taught him to do when the dust storms came, and he turned around and began to walk. And that's how he got lost, trying to walk home in the dust. When the storm had passed, his mother went out into the yard and spat red onto the red ground. She looked for him in the direction he had gone and saw no sign. So I've been talking to Fiona McFarlane. We've been talking about her novel, The Sun Walks Down, which is out in the UK from Scepter Books. Fiona, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.